in honor of season two of Euphoria being released on HBO Max this week, and for my cheating, dishonest liar of a partner to not be able to watch it since I logged out of my own Hulu, and then his other girlfriend's HBO Max account on both of his TVs per her request after discovering the extent of said aforementioned dishonesty and manipulation while I was watching his dog, who he refers to as his daughter, for him while he was on vacation in Puerto Rico, a country that he might be staying in, but one that I will have you reminded was bailed out by the guy whose apartment I stayed in one street away from the Louvre the first year I went to Paris. Suck on my balls. It has been a week, let me tell you. I really, really, really cannot stress how much I absolutely did not, did not need this character development, but as just seems to be the case with me and life, probably the most unfortunate series of events have begun unraveling, and I really, really regret making so many jokes about being the devil and going down to Georgia because I am just emotionally getting my ass absolutely demolished, and I, I don't think I necessarily needed to. I feel like anyone who has read enough of my blog can maybe just like take some sympathy towards that. And all I have to say is that at 28 years old, I can understand why so many single old ladies are just so content in their old age to share the wisdom that is ignoring men forever. I get why my parents were so strict with me. The world is just not a nice place. <laughs> Turns out it hurts even worse, too, when it's from someone who goes above and beyond to emphasize how they choose you, or the way that they plan their life with you, the way they phrase things to be inclusive and use R and we and point it out. <laughs> Motherfucking diversity consultants. Someone who epitomizes and brings you back to, you know, perhaps the only formal community you remain within, the Carolina community who evokes its presence in order to make you feel at home in this city that you're not really sure about and like, mm, it's not going so well, and makes you finally feel at home and like you belong and are appreciated just to lie to you. Someone who has heard and watched you speak on things that have impacted you and still impact you, who asks you to trust them and asks you to believe in them, while being objectively dishonest. And not, not just to me. It just goes to show that if the value of your words have no meaning, how do you expect anyone to allow you to lead them? When you lie to yourself for fear of the truth, your version of honesty becomes pretty damn subjective. This is my villain origin story. If we didn't have enough of those already. Thank the gods for Megara, Maleficent, Cruella de Vil at times, all of the strong, sassy Disney women ahead of their time for reminding me how to channel my rage into disgust and spite for the system that has enabled whatever these men are. This is what happens when we have people like Donald Trump avoid the draft, whose parents and lines of financing likely benefited from it extensively while all the really good ones just went off and died from guerrilla warfare tactics because, again, <laughs> we're always the terrorists on foreign land. Why would other countries not view us in such a light? The civil affairs emergence in the army is just as stunted as public health programs in the USA. It's no wonder we have such a cultural emphasis on avoiding reality. Which, like, what country doesn't? 
I mean, if the Japanese government can deny the Nanking Massacre despite the International Military Tribunal's judgment, the USA denying the lasting impacts of racism and the necessity for public health and progressive legislation seems pretty on par, honestly. I mean, as far as international delusions go, (laughs) the US also competes very heavily with Russia and China in these Olympics as well. That's all I'm saying. Thus, the topic for today. Addiction. Addiction is a huge problem in the United States. Dependently nourished via escapism, it feeds attention, dulling or managing negative emotion, silencing or distracting intrusive thoughts, boredom, social anxiety, whatever its source, whatever its vice, alcohol, hard drugs, soft drugs, whatever those are, exercise, food, maladaptive physiological behaviors of variety, just all comes back to wanting to avoid, dull, or desensitize and control reality. It comes back to not enjoying or feeling a sense of true, whole fulfillment, and it comes back to worries, anxiety, and ultimately dimming fear. Dude, I get it. (laughs) Sometimes everything just comes crashing to a halt. Sometimes you don't have the power or the energy to face it. Sometimes, even when you try, you get it wrong. (laughs) And you messed up, and you unravel. And some days you just don't have it. That's it. Other days you might. Before you judge addictions, just... Consider the negative habits in your own life, the foods you consume regularly, the lifestyle directives, how you spend each day, year, or years. Caffeine is a chemical stimulant and not unlike many other drugs, one that you can just harvest and perform differently on and regulate in a somewhat different manner, but it's still a form of a drug. Everything is. It's all chemistry. Physical chemistry, biological chemistry, internal versus external chemical systems, Everything in the world around you, the people, the animals, the earth itself, is made up of different types of chemical mixtures. Whatever medical ailment you're having at any given time is just something wrong with the chemicals, the cells, of that specific organ or system. Mental health is particularly complicated because it's about understanding yourself, about being aware of your internal brain chemistry and how it interacts with both external and internal stimuli. As a society, we struggle to adjust to not fitting people into one box, So much so that a lot of people have quarter or midlife crises, myself included, and don't know who they are themselves or how to figure that out because even they have adapted to following the orders of that society, not in understanding themselves in terms of their own role, their own assignment, the expectations placed upon them by others rather than their own. We use a lot of allusions to battle in modern day society that can often feel a bit misguided to me. Referencing battling addiction of any kind is not one of those cases, though. I also recently reread Night by Eli Wiesel, detailing the atrocities of the Holocaust, and there were some harrowing overlaps that I think may be relevant mentality-wise, and I kind of hope to do them justice. It's not insulting in any way. A few influential pieces to mention in reference to both pharmaceuticals and the Holocaust. The medical-grade amphetamines I'm prescribed for my daily use per ADHD are similar in chemical class to the one chemical consumed most enthusiastically by the Germans amongst all the powers in World War II who endorsed casual amphetamine use, which was a lot, honestly. Nazi ideology even upholds, much like the war on drugs, that social uses of drugs are a sign of personal weakness and a symbol of a country's moral decay. In fact, the American-produced amphetamine benzedrine 
was used as a doping product in the Olympic Games in Berlin in 1936. Mind you, the NCAA regulates prescription drug use around performance as well, and the sporting industry continues to push the boundaries for chemical enhancement. More amusing to me every day is that my mentor at Florida works within the Emerging Pathogens Institute and was a high jumper in the Olympics representing Germany. Upon learning about the benzedrine use, a German scientist created methamphetamine under the name Pervatin through a Berlin-based pharmaceutical company. The drug became wildly popular because of aggressive advertising campaigns, of which it is worth noting that only the United States and New Zealand are countries currently allowing pharmaceutical marketing, largely in part from the problematic history. In the U.S., we have a long-standing history of many of these very same chemical manufacturers creating excessively problematic and improperly disposed of hazardous waste. Waste that is now impacting Americans with horrendous cancers in every form. Impacting the food we eat, the air we breathe, the water we drink or bathe or swim in. Disregarded by the government in favor of capitalist gain, benefiting only a handful. Not just amphetamines either. Cocaine used to be in Coca-Cola. Manufactured and started right here in good old Atlanta. Also a company widely implicated in wartime propaganda. When white people were in control of it and profiting the most, financially, it was totally legal. Widely pushed and marketed even globally. And Coca-Cola clearly never took a hit for that. They simply rebranded and escaped accountability for lasting impacts and generational consequences related to addiction. Kind of like Johnson & Johnson realizing they have carcinogenic chemicals in sunscreens, baby powders, tons of items American consumers have used for generations of which the lasting and chronic exposures are finally revealing themselves, just for them to transfer that liability to a shell company in order to prevent the payout of reparations to the human beings being treated as test subjects, only to then also have these effects further exploited in a for-profit healthcare industry where Americans pay more and for worse outcomes than any developed nation, even when those outcomes are the result of administrative choices made above them, and convincing them that this is somehow the best way, which just helps prevent further accountability or access to knowledge, making it more difficult to trace clusters. We have a long history of psychiatric torment in pursuit of science, including use of pharmaceuticals to achieve optimal levels of control. This often meant treating abuse victims with more abuse. Having family members who lack the patience or education or access to healthcare able to sign off on the rights and bodily autonomy for another, and having doctors, experimenters, innovators of a form perform chaotically aggressive treatments because they were granted the opportunity to do so. Looking at photos of Holocaust victims or the lasting effects of addiction can have eerie similarities. Studying the parallels of human behavior on different scales and dressed in various styles of clothing just show that the war on drugs was subjective racially and undermined with eugenics connotations more than ever, especially in a modern age without universal health care. My life as a writer, that of a witness who believes he has a moral obligation to try to prevent the enemy from enjoying one last victory by allowing his crimes to be erased from human history. Crimes of human history include those waged in battles of the mind, the psyche, our brains and souls. Addiction happens to be one of those battles. 
I recently chanced upon the ideology that learned helplessness is actually typically accurate pattern recognition. Silence can happen to be a form of learned helplessness. When communication doesn't exist or seems to not be a wise choice, or you don't know how, silence. It makes me consider a lot of behavioral traits I adapted to because of patterns of abuse in certain dynamics and lack thereof of abuse elsewhere, and what my behavior around that person has historically entailed. Who I am to strangers, the way I approach situations because of my history of having to distrust most people other than myself, how I view myself. One of my sisters, who I love very dearly, internalized the abuse she received. Her dynamic with her family was not unlike mine in a lot of ways. It's just that her biological father was sexually abusive in addition to physically. So she became super silent and reserved and highly sensitive to any energy shifts or mood projections, understanding that there was no necessity to communicate because it was just disregarded and therefore not worth the energy to. I became my father (laughs) to everyone else but him. Every scene of Olivia Pope with her dad in Scandal just reminds me more and more of the tyrannical political force that runs red, white, and blue through my goddamn veins, and I work at that every day. I am grateful because in one way, his own absolutely unchecked ego as an aerospace engineer, let alone an aerospace engineer in post-Cold War era U.S. military dominance, allowed me to also understand that even the sky is no limit. My accomplishments and achievements, the goals I was actively working towards, are what kept me from derailing into learned helplessness. And for that, I recognize more and more just how very fortunate I am to have had those and to believe they were achievable, or to recognize the importance of being multifaceted, because those people, those relationships, industries, or events might even change. But your memories and the way that they made you feel won't necessarily. Those really, really good days and really good memories... The motivating factors in my life are so sweet in part because I know what the opposite side of that coin is, and I've had to try and learn to balance the scale. I know how overwhelmingly present that shroud of Dementor's cloak of agony feels depressed against your form. It just feels like dead weight. Not the heavy, warm-blooded, weighted warmth of another human's comforting embrace that you'll now no longer get. But just like cold, hanging emptiness, devoid of everything human, yet entombed in human flesh. It's a lot, but I also know how lucky I am to have that cloak when I need it. It might draw the attention under the looming sunshine, casting shadows upon the flowers around my feet. Or it offers comfort in a sun layer of protection from the rain. The downpour of showers that always comes when the sun gets too hot, after all. It bathes me in familiarity intermittently. Oftentimes being a burden to carry in the summer heat. But I do also know that it exists so that I can help ease someone else's transition into the unknown and that uncertainty. So I can help them to not feel so lost, even when they might be physically alone. Because that's what I'm good at, bridging gaps. The power of communication allows me to bring comfort, solace, or understanding far beyond my physical form. I write these in part because I understand I won't always be here. A lesson learned because of those who are no longer able to listen, but whose spirits live on in my memories, and who will never be able to hear the words or my stories because I was just too late to help the community for them. But maybe I won't be too late for someone else, and maybe I'll help someone else know that they're not alone in those moments or how to voice them. Statistically, you're never alone. There's a really weird comfort in knowing that of all the good that happens in the world, 
The bad is concurrently existing, and the pain that you might feel is shared, whether you're aware of it or not. When I needed him over a year ago now, which is especially wild because I live in the same city as him and we just can't really have communication, I guess. But the farm boy held my lifeless frame, letting the glass slippers of tears spill off the fairy tale of what an idyllic human I'm sure he thought I was. <laughs> a never needy, ever lovely jewel. While I eventually whimpered out something about how, you know, life is just watching everyone around you die as my godmother got diagnosed with a malignant tumor in her ovary today. Timing. But he just pulled me closer and let me cry and sighed that he knew. And I will just always love him for that because he was able to offer me the comfort that I needed and the comfort of mutual understanding. And for every overdose, there's siblings who remember, parents who found them, friends who partied with them. For every suicide, whether it's hanging or self-inflicted gunshots or cutting or accidentally overdosing, there is usually a pattern of events that were either normalized and dismissed or overlooked in some manner and downplayed maybe in part because survivor's guilt is a little fucking bitch. So is hindsight bias. And the reality that you could have done something differently or should have or might have recognized the signs if you had known what to look for really just sucks. And it does get exhausting trying to communicate just for nobody to listen and for the solutions to seem relatively simple yet ignored. I care a lot and it is exhausting, like mind-numbingly exhausting. So I don't judge all of the people from my hometown who didn't have the same goals or ideas to look forward to, same places to see, the opportunity for physical escape, who sought escape out in different ways. I don't judge my friends who reveal their childhood abuse to me, stacking on like five different people now, all from religious or military backgrounds, and how they're just now coming out of the closet at nearly 30 years old. Though I often carefully note that I suspected something was up just due to how much they drank and in what quantities. They're always like, really? I'm like, yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't judge the extent of trauma or the inability to understand and have one's choices available or clear or the intent of the individual who recognizes that they have a problem and want to work to understand that and grow healthily with a balanced life. I curate these pieces to share my writing and the framework of my mentality and education so that other people can, you know, maybe become sentient should they choose and want to do so. I've done a lot of the work myself, in, in a way, but I also do it as a much wider connection of thoughts so that I can make the overwhelming chaos of thought make sense, at least for a little while, so I can escape. Everybody has a vice. Moving from middle to high school is supposed to be a source of excitement for people. For me, it meant trying out for the fall soccer team and being the football team's kicker. A few weeks before orientation, for one of my best friends at the time, it meant her brother dying. I think it was her who found them. Um, I believe he was lying on the living room couch that I had sat on during sleepovers. And she was unable to wake him up and not necessarily sure why. And, you know, my one of my best friends at the time was probably the first person I knew immediately and dramatically impacted. And she was far from the last. <laughs> The effect her brother's death had on her own demeanor, though, and her family and her just general enjoyment for life in, in the community was pretty much enough to resign me to never have an interest in trying certain drugs. I'd already been to enough funerals for strings of suicides by then, too, 
Suicide by method of variation was very common knowledge via life experience for me before I ever studied public health and epidemiology, but for now, we'll keep it maintained to the accidental overdose and suicide. Substance abuse. Eli Whistle begins night with the tale of Moish the Beetle, a prophet of Jewish mysticism. Described as he spoke only of what he had seen, but people not only refused to believe his tales, they refused to listen. I hope you keep that in mind as you listen. As Eli also states, those who kept silent yesterday will remain silent tomorrow. While writing this over New Year's, a holiday I personally do not get excited about since the 2014 to 2015 transition, when it became synonymous with the date of sexual assault. So it coincides mentally with like a flashback to reality versus a dream of the future. <laughs> I not only found out about my current partner's purposeful dishonesty and had them lie to my face over and over again because they were unaware of just how much information I had for days. But also, yet another death of a high schooler I had mentally filed data on since middle school who would now no longer be attending our rescheduled 10-year reunion in the spring. Or at least I'm assuming that that was an overdose because while obituary after obituary never actually explains it, when I can't find any information on relevant car crashes or other police reports no matter what state I'm in for that hometown death, it's a pretty safe assumption that they died of a drug overdose. He now joins the ranks of my sister's ex-boyfriend's twin, this kid Cadence, one of my middle school best friend's brothers, about 20 plus other kids I could go through my yearbook and check off, along with my own first love. Of my brother's two childhood best friends, one of them was able to access rehab, have his father permanently relocate him to put physical distance between his vices and himself, wake up for six days and six nights in feverish sweats amidst a hellish detox, and access to the resources to make and have different choices. While he still struggles often with the urges of addiction and my own family's constant offers of alcohol despite him attempting to abide by an overall sober lifestyle, he's at least still here. The other one bit his own tongue off in an overdose-related seizure just for his mother to find him foaming at the mouth in death in the hometown he never left. It's a particularly interesting contrast to me because at one point I did have both of their dicks in my hand and mouth in my childhood bedroom and here we are years later after a series of very, very different choices and opportunities in life. <sighs> Nostalgia. A third friend who had separated from my brother's friend group earlier than the aforementioned two due to the location difference of his middle school was addicted to heroin before he ever finished high school. If you want to find out where to target the next generation of high-needs public health populations, just go to your local pound ball football leagues or ask any middle school teacher which students are struggling. Watch the parents, the way they discuss the kids' performances, the expectations placed upon each child, both by themselves and others. While it's important to not stereotype and always be mindful of bias and confounding variables, statistics do ultimately reveal patterns, and you could at least be open to exploring the potential variables with curiosity and mindfulness, as is human, so as to really comprehend the problem and to understand and potentially solve it. That friend's middle school was in a lower socioeconomic area of town, more of a harsh mix of rural and urban poverty, so the access to more and the drive for less was always obvious. But the education around choices and what that meant, less so. The highlight of a lot of their lives was high school football, or even just high school. Success felt insufficient or unachievable or culminated in the years of life that they had already lived, 
the partying atmosphere, the life milestones of dates where being old enough to drive, smoke, or drink passed, and then the rush to check off life experiences in the form of lackadaisical and typically uninformed drug use came and went, and the bad decisions just got easier and easier to rationalize, and bad, illogical choices are the gateway drug, not marijuana. My own friend groups were experimenting in their own ways. Amanda discusses her meth bombs at prom, and she was one of many within a large partying circle who I'm sure to this day have no clue what they've actually ingested. I honestly saw so much disgusting, disgusting behavior in relation to consuming alcohol to excess. And then within my familial history of as war trauma treatment or the daily Jack and Coke cocktail of a farmer, and then fellow peers, and on occasion myself, who surrendered bodily control willingly. So much so that I've mentally resigned to not have much of an interest for it myself, and maybe that's why I didn't go to or get invited to that many parties. I liked hanging out and talking weirdly normally, no matter what. I didn't need the influence of substance to be around people. Nowadays, I like to watch and hear and see drug use before I choose to do it. Informed use and consent. I drink socially, but rarely, if ever, to excess. Loved shrooms, would do it again with the right persons. Weed is great, now that I was able to do it comfortably within my own control and space. And all of those substances, alcohol included, just interact with your blood and brain chemistry in different ways. I'm a scientist, a researcher. I like to know exactly what I'm getting myself into, or what to at least be mindful of, prepared for, and having realistic substance use programs that documentary style share the realities of drug use or the history of various substances, including psychoactives and their development or the medical considerations, which like don't do cocaine if you have a latent heart condition, perhaps, and then the impact of them. The way inept policy has impacted local communities in relation to various substances, the lack of resources or healthcare of quality and the knowledge of those resources existence. A holistic education on them makes that pros and cons list look a lot less EDC, everything is a carnival, drugs are always spiritual and fun escapes, a little bit more pragmatic. I told one of my friends who has a history of panic attacks that medication is always beneficial to have on hand. I utilize lorazepam myself when I have anxiety spikes and am lucky enough to have a doctor in a very well-educated community. But I told her that researching her own health condition and working to actually understand herself with it especially how to separate through and logic the physiological conditions, is ultimately the key to management. The severe chest pains are just that. Chest pains, not a heart attack. When you learn how to understand and trust the difference in your neurological alarms for danger, you can logic through some of them. We have the technology to track your heart rate constantly, statistically analyze the data, and then reveal your biometrics back to you available at your fingertips anytime you want. But people are afraid of learning about and investigating their health, in part because ignorance is bliss. Just like ignorance and drug use is bliss, because you're not the one cleaning up someone else's vomit, moving their tongue from obstructing their airway during a seizure, waiting for a break in the delirium, hoping they don't die, and doing everything in your training to prevent them from doing so. But what we're doing and what we're trained for in the field is just that, a response. Prevention is also a choice. One much more beneficial and financially responsible to invest in, and prevention comes with legislative and regulatory directives. Narcan is one harm reduction approach. Universal healthcare, living wage, hope and trust in society are other harm reduction approaches. Substance use and subsequent abuse is a symptom of a much larger problem. 
unhappiness, discontent, despair, comorbidities where physical and mental health connect that require a more holistic approach. In reference to the fascist party seizing power, Whistle and Knight writes, yet we were still not worried. Of course we had heard of the fascists, but it was all in the abstract. It meant nothing more to us than a change of ministry. One chapter later, our eyes opened. Too late. The next. What do you think? That we came here of our own free will? That we asked to come here? Shut up, you moron. You should have hanged yourselves rather than come here. Didn't you know what was in store for you here in Auschwitz? You didn't know? In 1944? An eerily dystopian parallel to the effects of substance abuse and addiction in 2022. We know that the pharmaceutical industry's prescribing practices being related to for-profit healthcare contributed and caused the overwhelming opioid crisis, with fentanyl overdoses associated now being the leading cause of death for anyone ages 18 to 45. Yet still, we don't have universal health care? Why would we, when it's beneficial to the sporting industry and executives within our health industry to do so? In 2017, the National Survey on Drug Use and Health revealed that 20 million American adults ages 12 or older report struggling with a substance use disorder. 75% of those also struggled with an alcohol use disorder. Drug use and addiction cost American societies over $740 billion annually and lost workplace productivity, healthcare expenses, and crime-related costs. Literally just less than our military budget. Substance abuse isn't just overdosing on heroin in your car in the Walmart parking lot, either. It can, and commonly is, miss and overusing prescription medications. The champagne problems of access to healthcare and being able to afford it. Seeing as how genetics can be attributed to 40-60% to 60 of individual risk for addiction, for a variety of reasons, both hereditary factors and then how cycles of abuse are common, and just that, cycles. So generation after generation will encounter the same behaviors, or once again, history will repeat itself lest we learn from it and share what we learn. One of my friends, an incredibly wealthy white girl, whose mom was once Miss North Carolina back in the day and probably was and always has been, one of the people that I would have and always have admired for just really walking her own path. She became addicted to opioids following a surgical procedure from a sporting injury in like high school. Years later, she was terrified during a different unrelated procedure for the recovery because the worry of addictive potential still haunted her. Another friend of mine had a breast reduction a few months back and I was able to visit and function as her live-in nursing aide and caretaker. <laughs> Even had to milk the drains. <laughs> which significantly helped her already substantial anxiety, simply because I was there to monitor and track her opioid use, even just associated with surgical recovery. A lot of the kids I went to high school with experienced and were encouraged to use their heads and the rest of their bodies as battering rams, especially within football, and lack the community sports or resources to be healthily active as adults, or even access and know of the type of healthcare and healthy interventions. Just lifting weights every day isn't really going to be enough. Or how to research them. What are the right questions to ask? So why would they have any general understanding of how their own bodies work, or should feel, when most of them don't access healthcare as is, when those mentalities also haven't been available to them and are definitely not, <laughs> not being discussed colloquially around the local watering hole, the bar, on a weekend night? And again, it's taken me over 10 years of higher education and life experiences within healthcare to key in myself 
so I definitely don't expect the kids who failed seventh grade science to understand it. Who in the community was modeling and making healthier choices accessible? Nobody. We have a county fair pageant for the flower of the tobacco plant. So if they solve their chronic pain with the crushed up and snorted opioids or injectable synthetic drugs after parties and years of crushed up and snorted opioids, or witnessing drug use after drug use where things just turned out okay, person after person who lived, story after story of rainbows and kittens and positivity and wild times, crazy stories instead of the crazy hangovers or hellish ER visits, and they started on that path without ever actually understanding what it meant to stay on it and how hard it would be to choose to turn away and travel a very different path and whether they would be able to. They should take a deep breath and forgive themselves for their compounded mistakes and then work to understand how to communicate what they wish to say to others. It's not necessarily going to be anything other than your own personal version of hell, but like, look around you. Humanity's pretty fucked up on a very massive scale, and we can only really work to minimize the damage. Baby steps are still steps. It's the scientist way of approaching those things. If you fail 1,000 times, you just learn a 1,000 ways something doesn't work in pursuit of the one way it does. I mean, every time I drop one of these pieces, I feel like I splinter into a bomb of vulnerability, and some people tell me that they're healing. So it's all about perspective. Oh, speaking of perspectives... Kobe Bryant was suing the opioid manufacturers and concierge doctors involved with his treatment when his helicopter crashed in case you want to dive down that conspiracy theory. And for everyone at Kobe, for every professional athlete who takes it upon themselves to become involved in something larger than them, they take a continued risk to their own personal safety, comfort, and state of leisure to do so or voice it. But for every one of Kobe, there are 10 times as many children who'd never played in college or never made it past their hometown or never were able to separate the confounding variables of poverty enough to have definitive proof for what the source of addiction is and how to respond to try and change the conditions for others because they don't have a way out. And it's just not plausible to think that everyone should have to leave in order to escape. When I identify problematic behavior, whether it's in myself and others, I try to think of it in a biochemical sense. At your happiest, your most content, what emotions are you doing? What ways is your body moving? What chemical synapses are engaged? For how long and in what context? How do you tap into better living through chemistry to meet your needs in a healthier way? And why were they being actively met through whatever substances you currently use? Who were you around? When, if ever, were you balanced and by what methods? How do we as a society currently depict human behavioral habits and in what way? And why are the choices we gravitate towards currently seeming like the best options? What kind of marketing has trained that larger thought? What kind of blinders? Between 1999 and 2017, drug overdoses more than tripled, and opioid overdoses in particular increased sixfold, often the result of targeting pain management. We passed act after act recusing prescribers from barring responsibility or accountability in their methodology, and continue to do so despite still having the power for federal legislation around at least one substance, marijuana, capable of being self-grown and conveniently having decades of research involving efficacy towards pain management already widely accessible and reputable. Not federally legalizing weed is due to decades of public policy around the war on drugs, targeting racial minority communities and transferring the power of wealth into the permits and hands of people that they choose who can healthily manage one's businesses. 
just like Britney Spears' father could healthily manage her conservatorship, despite being one of her abusers, even if at one point it really might have been familial love and genuine concern for her well-being. It doesn't excuse years of inability to adapt, remediate, and grow. If alcohol is federally legal and safe, the only reason not to have facilitated marijuana by now is lacking testing procedures for current active use for law enforcement or occupational purposes. It was never about pain management or emphasizing and making healthier choices accessible. It was always about control of the wealth and policing over freedom. Even with knowledge of our own healthcare system's influence on the opioid pandemic, we still criminalize addiction. With the world's most vast for-profit prison network, America number one, and recovery treatment programs, we still devalue public health, refuse to institute living wages, so areas of lower socioeconomic status and the people who reside within those are more likely to have access to a much cheaper, simpler solution that effectively alleviates whatever is paining them short-term than having the time, energy, or money to even search for alternatives. Then we increase policing, as if responding to crime is the same thing as preventing it, and our communities get fractured in chaos beyond recognition. Sometimes my mind often feels fractured similarly. I used to question whether it was the ADHD or the PTSD or the personality, and I got I got to be honest here. I'm starting to think it's just who I am. <laughs> that said, I'm really thriving with season two of The Witcher and series character arc. My OG mentor loves it from the video games, though I only knew of it because of the Netflix adaptation starring Henry Cavill, because, mm, damn, who wouldn't watch him? But it makes me smirk mercilessly understanding why he was so amused that I liked it and to connect what about it I know he likes. There's a lot of overlap with addiction and fear. And like most battle-heavy magical realm entertainment, which satisfies my LARPing fantasies, it is inundated with speeches on fear and perseverance. Fear is an illness. If you catch it and you leave it untreated, it can consume you. Learning about things has destroyed their power over me. The fear I felt in facing their situation. I felt prepared like I was studying an opponent. Learning about myself has functioned similarly to calm the anxiety, the fear, the tremors hidden in the gentle rising of the hairs on my arm, reading the bodily cues and sitting with them, observing them, exploring them, in the method a scientist would, analysis, processing on the go, machine learning, sifting through stimuli, formulating possibilities and risk assessment, then executing decisions based outwardly on intuition and inwardly with the swiftness of the crew of the Black Pearl and the Pirates of the Caribbean. Ragtag and shambly, but somehow incredibly efficient and very well complemented. Geralt of Rivia quotes, You can't run from the world. You can't hide from it. But you can find power and purpose. A chance to survive the horror. Sometimes the world really fucking sucks. Sometimes it's just your own personal world. Sometimes it's the world as an entity, but when enough chaos and confusion and grief and pain and hurt gets interjected into your daily life, the triggers come without any solutions. The solutions exist, and with education and thoughtfulness, you know they're there. And yet, getting anyone to listen in the general knowledge of academia and perceived limitations of a single individual makes you understand why. Your grandfather went through a handle of gin a day. Remained in servitude of his country his whole life, despite rampant nightmarish anger and flashbacks of undiagnosed PTSD, 
from three different war traumas, maintaining a relatively unblemished career publicly in search of answers, or why he eventually preferred to spend his time reading, bored with petty communication, caught up in establishing a legacy over begging for sympathy, mindful of how his own fellow veterans in Vietnam were discarded from the National Mall for asking for help once. Asking for help is scary, especially when you need it or want it, because the idea of having to do things alone doesn't mean you always should, but also because the idea of finally asking for it and it not being there or being enough or to face the recognition that it doesn't value you makes it worse, especially if historically it wasn't there for you or the recognition that by the time you ask for help or hit, they might not be willing or able to. Knowing you are alone is different from feeling like you are. Unless you really, really understand that mentality, I don't think you can comprehend how difficult it is to combat addiction. And I use combat purposefully. We're a country founded on, prideful of, our industrial military complex. That pride in the armed forces used to mean something. When it was imposing on actual terrorism, human rights violations, inept government, a threat to freedom, we are often indoctrinated from youth to trust a higher, male source of faith. When Fringilla and Yennefer are under attack in season two of The Witcher, Fringilla says, We'll be saved. I have faith. To which Yennefer replies, Forget faith. We've got power. And we do. We have the power of choice. We have the power of democracy, of voting, of recognizing that the decisions around you are absolutely curated by a long list of political decisions that predates you and surpasses you, but do include you. Whether you choose to vote on them or not. Whether you choose to acknowledge them or not. Somewhere, when wealth and power became indistinct in late-stage capitalism, and that powerful industrial military complex became a force for capitalist gain over truly defending freedom, and even in our history, the use of the American military against our own citizens has exclusively been to the benefit of the wealthiest or the status quo versus justice. The military prowess of being prepared to handle everything alone. Because you just, <laughs> you just might have to. Or you're entering life knowing that you might be expected to. For the service in and greater good of the country. Without enough resources, but with at least enough to tentatively make do. At some point, that mentality became the backbone of our societal legislation back home as well. They might, hopefully, prepare you for the territory, sprawling urban jungles with Earth's most fascinatingly horrifying mammal rampant, humanity, or the acres of wilderness, and one of the alternative extremes, isolation, the natural world. Time to research your environment, prepare for deployment, get your affairs in order, Depending on where you're deployed and for what purpose you serve, you might as well be alone. Nobody in Washington, D.C. is going to be able to react and save your ass when your life's on the line. Which is part of why societally we emphasize personal choices to such a militant, individualist extreme. In doing so, though, we've also made it so that help is very much so unavailable. I still refuse to access health care. <laughs> largely because of the barriers of unexpected costs that come weeks later via the mail, but also because I grew up ingrained with the military mentality of only using it when everything else is completed or you have no alternative and the exhausting research of over-the-counter herbal or natural remedies just wasn't useful. 
when you have to weigh the cost for access to basic necessities for life, like health, <laughs> and you can't really run the risk of several hundreds of dollars in delayed and unexpected payments for something like an urgent care visit to not be beneficial because of the financial impact on your mental health and physical well-being, as well as the time lost, it's still not really access to care. So how dare we act like we do enough as a society to make counseling available, even just financially, when you literally become a financial burden because you have to ask for help, when there is literally nobody investing in your community, or when the only role models you have exist on a television screen playing a game for a living, in it for the glory but rarely being a morally good role model within their community and a chance for something different, rarely personally connecting. But investments come with economic control. And while a universal basic income might be misused by some people for unnecessary items, sure, a lot more people might take it upon themselves to improve the communities they live in and feel safe and able to have the time to breathe and figure out how to do so. The average American shouldn't be threatened with losing everything, with homelessness, with isolation and loneliness, self or community imposed, because they need help. But that's the system we've currently set up. If your family isn't already knowledgeable of or equipped to help, you're pretty much fucked. <laughs> you just get tossed to the wolves. And shrouding cultures in shame just for the pretense of an omniscient presence of love control. Doesn't seem to do much other than allow a convenient outlet for personal accountability under the frame of the devil's touch. Conditioning humans so your problems should only be revealed in private, with the potential darkness of confession, while glorifying tales of murder, abuse, disrepair, and dark magic under the guise of faraway lands and people with no personal relation to you other than as figments of your imagination. Don't allow the realities of society to be addressed. Just ignored or conveniently shuttered. And don't provide modern context for reparations. Only silence when it matters. In night, Eli writes, But now I no longer pleaded for anything. I was no longer able to lament. On the contrary, I felt very strong. I was the accuser, God the accused. My eyes had opened, and I was alone, terribly alone, in a world without God, without man, without love or mercy. I was nothing but ashes now, but I felt myself to be stronger than his almighty, to whom my life had been bound for so long. In the midst of these men assembled for prayer, I felt like an observer, a stranger. And then there was no longer any reason for me to fast. I no longer accepted God's silence. Doctors study medicine. Teachers study education. Healers study darkness. And right now, a big source of darkness is our necessity to escape from communication and reality. When I began looking up relevant sources, some of the main overdose Google searches were relevant to whether or not your family would be denied life insurance. Hmm, <laughs> telling about the American society. Purdue Pharma was fined $635 million in 2007 for knowingly marketing opioids such as OxyContin falsely to be less addictive. 
Yet doctors, patients, and the general public weren't made aware of this ruling. There were no lawmakers similarly lobbied to implement policies to prevent this from occurring again. No requirement for sponsored continuing medical education courses or research necessitating non-addictive treatment plans or holistic health considerations. Death for thousands and millions of people impacted. But a mere slap on the wrist financially and minimal legislative change. Part of this, and part of the escapism culture, struggles because Americans are used to expecting and receiving a quick, immediate solution for anything. Short-term solutions are a necessity, or else any democratic progress might be quickly undermined via the next election cycle, as Republicans scurry to undo any of the attempted progress and use it to legitimize their own campaigns aimed at purposeful miseducation. You have some pain, you want an immediate solution, something treating the chemicals you currently experience and don't like, reducing their impact on you so that you can otherwise function normally but not whilst addressing their source and production or the frame of what your normal is. We scoff at yoga, holistic, healthy movement because of its Indian heritage and holistic medical emphasis, internal reflection, healing through movement, understanding one's physical strength through stillness and balance instead of violent or outward aggression. Yet, health insurance plans commonly cover pain medication, but not pain management approaches like physical therapy, which further undermine any attempts to emphasize holistic healing. When those additional visits for alternative healing come with additional copays, unexpected billing weeks later, time to request off from work that isn't guaranteed, the ability to prioritize yourself and one's health, or even to just understand your own needs and how to ask for them, let alone how to access them, and to feel like you can, without causing additional stress. The prescription recommendations become the easiest, quickest, and often cheapest for you solution. Second, maybe to like alcohol. While I do appreciate having the extra muscle relaxers left over from my car accident on hand, whenever my clavicular area unnecessarily holds tension, access to regular massage therapy would probably be just as beneficial and proactive in reducing incidents and cost my insurance a lot less in the long run with significantly improved patient satisfaction. Plus, if I'm trying to write for 10 hours or study the complexities of the brain, I really don't want to be annoyingly pestered by the neurological chaos shooting through the titanium pin placement, and I don't always have the time to stretch it out in the way that it needs to be. And we can't target issues like the opioid crisis and addiction without considering the pharmaceutical and health industries, the sporting industry, general marketing towards consumerism and pop culture. The U.S. and New Zealand are the only two countries in the world that allow direct advertising of pharmaceuticals to consumers. And right now, I gotta be honest, I don't necessarily think it's a bad thing. I just think that information has a skewed marketing perspective. There's also the seeming anger at self-diagnosing for medical conditions, but especially psychiatric ones, which befuddles me because even in medicine, you should understand that the only person who really knows what's going on in their body and what is normal and healthy for them, is that person. Just because we are giving more people a wider variety of words and expressions to learn from, use, and explain their own behavior with, or in reference to, doesn't mean that is a bad thing, especially psychiatrically, because there's a lot to suggest that hallucinations, visions, symbols, nightmares, dreams, are related to your memory storage and processing and chemical production. 
And if you're slowly figuring out the words or ways to explain it, even because you found relevance in another's perspective of their own, even just from TikTok, that's still a great thing. <laughs> now you don't need to like treat or diagnose everyone. Yes, I remind myself of that constantly. I know I analyze just by nature. But if other people only experience certain patterns of behavior with you and notate that and then bring it up as concern, maybe we as humans need to like not react quite so harshly and consider why they would think that with their own perspective or fear. Something worth mentioning is that doctors spend eight years of training to still get it wrong or cycle through multiple diagnoses as new pieces of the puzzle reveal themselves or as a person learning the language or science for the first time can get it wrong, even to just themselves. To really, truly treat to heal is to treat to understand, and no doctor can want to understand or has the time to sift through it with you and hold your hand every step of the way. Even to them, at some point, you have to be a patient, and the puzzle of their focus is often either like the identified disease specifically or the general vicinity of where the pain, blockage, or error in bodily communication is localized. Those doctors can do diagnostic tests, ask rudimentary questions about factors of higher priority or implications that may be related. Pregnancy for women, no matter what. Been nauseous all week and I'm like, it must, has to be pregnant. Doesn't matter if it's possible or not. It's just like, I'm like, yeah, this immaculate conception. But at some point, you have to be able to voice what's going on, or at least identify the source or area of pain. Yeah, like often you do get non-communicative patients, physically alive somehow, but mentally checked out. And you can coax them back to stability within reason, reconnect the infrastructure of their body, soothe their sensors and stressors and help to work with them to identify or provide the words beyond their current understanding. And as a human, a patient, an individual, you do, at some point, have to be willing and able to walk that bridge alone. If only because you are the singular person with access to the knowledge and memories and events within your brain. And while others may or may not exist to offer any contrasting viewpoints or alternative interpretations, Figuring out which ones to believe and trust is only going to be something that you're capable of doing personally. For many of us, that's going to be really hard because the foundations of our trust seem splintered and ruined, preserved in disrepair. Kind of like the Roman Colosseum, a testament to the historic battles, recalling periods of glory, <laughs> now serving as a public display for education and reconsideration of Barbary. For that, I understand the benefit of what religion offers most. A theme to place your trust in. Community. Abstract values. Intangible. Always reachable even at your weakest and loneliest moments. But what can someone like myself do? I'm neither a sage nor a just man. I am not a saint. I'm a simple creature of flesh and bone. I suffer hell in my soul and in my flesh. It amuses me to no end that church is where I first learned the power of dissociation and where I came to value my own voice of reason and judgment because of questioning it. Losing my religion is exactly where I found my faith. My power. Elwoods was right. Above all, you must always have faith in yourself. Goes to show the impact of poor leadership that is inherently flawed or how an inability to apologize and account ripples chaos throughout your life unexpectedly and unpredictably whether you intended it to or not. 
Have evangelicals considered that the war on Christianity might be because certain aspects of the institution of things like the Catholic Church are faulty or, I don't know, damned? <laughs> Eli Weasel reflects, Blessed by God's name? Why? But why would I bless him? Every fiber in me rebelled. Because in his great might, he had created Auschwitz, Birkenau, Buna, and so many other factories of death. You chased Adam and Eve from paradise. When you were displeased by Noah's generation, you brought down the flood. When Sodom lost your favor, you caused the heavens to rain down fire and damnation. But look at these men whom you have betrayed, allowing them to be tortured, slaughtered, gassed, and burned. What do they do? They pray before you. They praise your name. Some countries remain entrapped in physically grotesque displays of violence. For others, modern warfare is more sinister. Underhanded displays of politicians playing God or creating widespread distrust of our own national unbiased institutions of diverse intellectualism. Ripples in the faith. Sneakier, more subjective threats to national security. Intelligence deviously injected for psychological torment. A craft I researched, perfected, and now moved to extinguish. So I will have faith in the endless ruck march to reinstall actual freedom. Or power for the people, and all of the people, who reside within our communities. I will trudge on through the guerrilla warfare cruelty of going into hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt for people who don't seem to want your help and have leaders calling to ignore your help, <laughs> who expect you to politely await for your cue to respond to preventable disasters that your trainings and protocol already exist for, yet were conveniently ignored in an attempt to assert that intellectualism has no power here. I will try to remind myself of Daenerys Targaryen's misfortune in overextending her power, skewering the bodies of those who attacked her, demonizing non-compliance as enemy, being harsh with anger and vengeance and too reactive for patience. In having to assert repeatedly her expectations, demands, she became unwilling to compromise and unable to separate herself from the larger picture, peace, a change in the realm, justice. A fiery, intimidating dragon, her mere presence put people on the defensive, and she spent so much time at war that it became difficult to sift through, trust, and recognize the different intentions of those around her. Would she have been willing to believe them? With her life's work, her happiness, her life on the line? Would she have been able to take those risks? But it's not so much that I feel strong enough to take the risks. It's that I'm more afraid of a future in which we do nothing. I reference Eli Weasel's night so frequently because I imagine the sentiments of the horrors of the Holocaust being shared with that hollow recollection in my grandfather's eyes. The hollowness of the transient populations I worked with, empty, tired, stranded in life, often plagued with too much instability, too much exploitation of their energy, and too little community. Too few and too rare the reward that in the worst of cases, and mentally, you may not have the words to express the battle in your mind, but books and research on the horrors of the world may. And the choice to start over isn't as simple 
as all the old war veterans who packed up their belongings and left their incidental families when they relocated to a different town. Perhaps starting over with a new wife, new kids, new hope, clean slate. Only to be discovered years later at the whim of curiosity and modern technology. I personally love this generation's use of 23andMe DNA tests to really shell-shock the old, like, your father went out for milk one day and never came home, racist implications, to show just how many family secrets exist in white families, too. However well-intended your methodologies were, however well-anticipated the expectations were aligned, it does not detract from the impact of actions you may never even be aware of for years. You know, let's not forget that. One of my friends had her dad fuck a stripper and her, like, his 12-year-old illegitimate child came to stalk their family, much to their dismay. No clue the kid even existed. 12 years. You know? Think about that. All you men fucking these random-ass girls. <laughs> and I think a lot of the addiction I've witnessed and observed stemmed from fear of acknowledging the difference in one's perception or the truth in one's words or that they think truth and description in those moments universally means it encompasses the entity of their character versus like the repeated behavioral impact on that person, sharing that with them, and then what evidence that they have to contribute to that perception. I was afraid of finding myself alone that evening. How good would it be to die right here? I am afraid every day that the family member who stole my mom's pain medications for an upcoming surgery while visiting for Thanksgiving a few years back, who we caught on our camera system doing so, will overdose and die, and will die bitterly angry at me because their own ego prevents them from getting help or at least communicating with me. Why I shouldn't be worried. I am fearful that the family member with a history of taking my own medication without asking, Vicodin from past surgeries, Adderall from daily ADHD, who couldn't grasp that it wasn't that they wanted it. It was their dishonesty and assumption that it was fine to do so. Utilizing my items for their own gain, withholding information from me, without allowing me consideration to make a choice, because ultimately they were too afraid of the response that they crafted a dishonest form. I suppose to them, it didn't feel like a choice that would really impact me, so it didn't seem necessary to ask. I have incredibly high standards for honesty and communication these days. And because I'm so aware of the day existing where I don't get to communicate and where I can no longer, I will always stress the importance of it. Even when I know I'm not the best at it. I have had my consent removed or chosen without my approval too many times to not. At the same time, I'm afraid. I'm also thankful and hopeful because of one of my friends in my brother's social circle who reached out to me after going to rehab a few years back actually thanked me for the post that I shared on social media about addiction and told me it made it easier for him to know that an alternative was there. It doesn't make it easier for me to feel like the bad guy or the scapegoat, exhausted because I'm still healing and impacted from their decisions made onto me years ago that still impact me and affect my reactions and behaviors now, my ability to trust especially. But I at least feel strength to not feel responsible for their choices. I am proud of the multiple men who like to align themselves with alpha male strength, especially being from Florida, who have called me in the last year and came out as bisexual, with me being one of the first people they've told, and one who called me to talk about wanting help with their addictions that mask those fears. Men who became more afraid about living as someone they're not than fear of societal and their community's judgment. 
men who became more afraid about withholding their expression and ability to love than communicating it. I feel pride in these cases and joy in just verdicts, but it elicits only temporary happiness without organization on a federal level that impacts the ability to ignore progressive norms undeniably relevant to all communities. With addiction treated and viewed differently based on outward appearance for how much money you're worth, more so than what type of drugs and factors led to your addiction. And those verdicts don't bring back the dead. I know that legislation alone won't change those factors either. It takes time, education, and cultural shift. But the legislation drives the framework for it. And if we can invest $770 billion in our nation's military, going tens of billions of dollars over the asking budget in a time when we're supposedly not at war, and spending more than like the next 11 countries combined then we should be able to invest just as much within our own borders, and minimally, enough to make the actual necessities of local communities afford a comfortable living wage without constantly being worried that federal disruption will make those communities unsafe or that one medical procedure will render them bankrupt. People are not willing to work jobs for poverty wages and over-prioritizing administration, executives, or any other level that isn't necessarily doing a harder job. They're just managing different things. And that inability to recognize it has made our societies unhealthy at their core. And small change simply isn't enough. Because there are humans who are being killed every single day, who have been indoctrinated by right-wing frameworks to have Stockholm Syndrome for their oppressors. There are humans who live under these rules and regulations in fear of themselves, because wanting better, differently, and knowing that can't simply be the norm, ostracizes you and makes you an outsider. There are people who shame themselves for biochemical reactions felt and learned, whether it's under the intensity of substance distortion or curiosity, exploration. And there are people who end up killing themselves, accidentally overdosing, as if wanting and needing to escape real life, however temporarily, isn't worrisome. When I hadn't let that MLS player's older brother stay over because I have to protect my environment right now and I don't handle threats to my physical safety in that very cautiously, so unexpected stimuli is still a threat, at least until it can be deemed safe again. Again, I'm starting to just think it was the way I was raised. He revealed a fear around his brother's drug use. It doesn't change the lack of consideration for my own boundaries or the lack of adequate discussion around expectations and honesty in those on his end, but at least I could understand that he drinks so much in a cycle with his brother, and I recognize that his brother probably also drank so much because he didn't necessarily know where he fit into his brother's social circle in Atlanta, which is a lot different and people treat him a lot differently than he would ever have known before or on his own. And drugs of variety might seem new and fun and exciting for a little while, but they get less exciting as the names start piling up of people you know. I know he was fearful of the vulnerability too, and in truth, I still feel that he deserved the worded retaliation he received for every hour of silence and excommunication. Communication and recognition can be scariest of all. I know those administrators, executives, and figureheads weren't writing the prescriptions themselves, weren't personally peddling the opioids, but because of year after year after year of inept leaders, we reduced public accountability and placed more blame on the person who was unable to feel love, reception, and joy in community than in those who created a community to remain that way for profit. People in medicine or careers like dentists, pharmacists, are often at the highest risks for abusing prescription drug-related practices. While they have increased access to the sources, 
as well as holistic knowledge of the extremes and norms for use, medically and recreationally. A lot of higher education also involves understanding the intended uses, and coupled with commonality and excess, can lead to integration of said uses at personal discretion versus the medically referenced directive. Not uncommon either, especially since a lot of pharmaceutical use emerged because they were used unintentionally or accidentally or incidentally. And those neat little side effects emerge, like how antibiotics are used to treat acne. The Food and Drug Administration, FDA, is charged with evaluating the safety and effectiveness of drugs when used as directed, and evaluates drugs one at a time, rather than as families of semi-interchangeable molecules such as opioids. This has made it difficult to respond to the ever-increasing diversity of synthetic opioids, and inherently built in a system incapable of considering implications for misuse. We have pharmaceutical lobbyists who pay for legislation that benefits their company or drug, and pay for policies that prevent external regulation, all the while facilitating internal research that can be kept hidden, very unethically so. As is the case with many issues American consumers face, whether it's in reference to nutrition, environmental exposures, like car regulations, the NCAA and NFL, or healthcare. We know that benzodiazepines are emerging as the next class of drugs to have similar outcomes. Given that antipsychotic medications are prescribed at higher and higher rates to lower socioeconomic areas without consideration or offering holistic intervention because of a lack of government administration, you know, facilitating that healthier communities be prioritized, not solely in relation to direct medical treatment. We can anticipate a similar climatic rise to parallel that of opioids to a certain degree. Kanye West really is our 21st century schizoid man and the conflation of his narcissism, his known history of mental health and discussion around the way medication affects his creativity, makes his divorce to legal mogul Kim Kardashian that much more fascinating. Kim chose to work smarter and harder. Yee chose Christian religiosity and released an album to target and influence black religious affiliation of Christianity while entering a political campaign late and endorsing right-wing religiously affiliated backers. I mean, fair. He warned us about how he felt being called the abomination of Obama's nation. It was a pretty bad way to start the conversation. But it does seem a bit ironic that this man's career was founded on the back of how the system's broken and the schools closed and the prisons open, or how we ain't got nothing to lose, motherfucker, we rolling. But he wouldn't endorse more progressive public health legislation. So close. He even told us in Monster, love, I don't get enough of it. Can't believe the trajectory of a man who started so strong with, if I don't get ran out by Catholics, here come the conservative Baptists claiming I'm overreacting, eventually caused so much chaos in his own communities that he just joined the ones who weren't taxed because his version of love was always money just like the pharmaceutical and entire healthcare industry. Which, Yi was right. Prescription rates are significantly higher in low socioeconomic areas, and as such, a lot of racial minority communities. But he also isn't endorsing tangible policies to address them, so he can shut the hell up. What a false prophet. I have also been a menace for the longest, only I at least understand the importance of having government administration facilitate economic freedom in a socialist baseline to any healthy society. Almost like an economic system that functions under the trickle-down economics of an MLM, Ponzi scheme, or pyramid scheme, maybe just isn't the best in rebuilding themselves when they're denied access to the resources to do so, and our decrepit tax system pilfers from the poor and gives access to the excessively wealthy with no incentive to benefit society. The wind is whipping up, the waves are gathering, so when the storm hits, or the next one after that, it just simply isn't logical to say that nothing could be done just like it isn't logical for parents of suicidal children to feel like there were no warning signs. 
You either weren't looking for them, which is fine, because not everyone is trained to, and it does suck to be trained universally for disaster, expect it constantly, and not trust the calm, or admitting the signs were there and were attempted to be communicated, and you didn't read them right or react beneficially or understand what they needed or that the way that they were hurting and feeling, and you didn't have the time to communicate and figure that out because you were scared too, a fear that became relevant and realized because you don't have a choice to not be anymore. It's too hard and you can't grapple with that and forgive yourself, but you need to. We as communities need to be willing and able to communicate about what was wrong, in addition to what was positive. It's not focusing on the negative, it's improving our weaknesses and not relying on constant strength. Those reiterations of trauma are not meant to cause more pain, though they inevitably do. Understanding and overcoming addictions means overcoming trauma. Whistle's faceless neighbor in Chapter 5 hauntingly states, I have more faith in Hitler than in anyone else. He alone has kept his promises, all his promises, to the Jewish people. For a lot of Americans, they lack the faith in government to improve conditions, to reduce and prevent further corruption. And addiction overwhelms when, in addition to lacking faith in community, in government, they also lack faith in themselves. Death enveloped me. It suffocated me. It stuck to me like glue. I felt I could touch it. The idea of dying, of ceasing to be, began to fascinate me. To no longer exist, to no longer feel anything, neither fatigue nor cold, nothing. But all I had to do was close my eyes to see a whole world pass before me, to dream of another life. The subject matter may be different, but the sentiment and expression may often be the same. I think I understand more and more that my very presence and my being can be particularly triggering to people, my own family at times, in part because it reminds them of the realization of how bad they felt. When they can read the pain on my face, when they can see the torment in my eyes, the physical exhaustion of my body, the mental clarity and at times just disgust for the way that their actions impacted me and how those were cast aside, disregarded, clouded by ego, year after year, instead of recognizing, considering, and redirecting in those moments. They double down and defend, refuse to apologize, or isolate me because admitting their actions were inherently dishonest, or that their personal choices don't simply impact them, seems to be one of the most difficult things in the world to do. I become immortalized as the devil, this bad omen, because I am a reminder of that moment of recognition, or that pain, or when the communication clicked in a way for them to understand. And I don't come shrouded in illumination and unconditional love like the angels in storybooks, here to wave off all the nightmares with the angelic feathers of my wings, dismissing the negativity with my sheer presence. I come with logic and ethics and morality and the side of accountability, of solutions instead of band-aids, of balance and restoration of peace, of communicating and deploying boundaries, of the discomfort of growth, the uncertainty of the unknown, which, for many, 
is healthy communication and understanding. I come with the knowledge of what happens to those who face combat after combat. The weariness of checking over your shoulder constantly, being manipulative and dishonest to me, and then thinking anything other than a direct, clear, perhaps a somewhat timid approach, is helpful. I also remind myself that everyone learns in their own ways, in their own methods, and at their own time. The diversity of education, or just diversity in general, is something we should be prioritizing because it emphasizes mutual understanding and the different methods in which people learn about life. Many have to learn observationally, through experience. People like that are especially important for addressing systems that have inherent flaws, such as those that test items purely for their intended use without consideration for misuse or at least equally strong legislation around adapting to research that reveals its misuse. Because the system that was designed didn't work for them, but could. I preferred and always have benefited from a diverse mixture of learning through books, reading works spoken directly, and those immersed in the arts, veiling abstract concept under less formal musings, an activity, learning observationally, connecting my body and mind with my teammates, the animals, the environment around me, reading cues or notating behavioral signs, or interpreting energy while executing orders. I jump from tree limb to tree limb of subject matter with the dexterity only of someone with innate experience and immersion in the environment of education because I was planted amongst it. Your life's experiences, which for me just happened to coalesce with my social and work life within academic environments, where I happen to feel the safest within, are the result of choices made before you, individually, consciously, subconsciously, genetically, communally, administratively, politically. The choices and decisions influenced by the people around you, purposefully or not. I found power and strength in learning how those systems were built, and for what purpose, and how they have, or have not, evolved to adapt with modern technology, modern scientific advancements, modern social structure and cultural patterns. I found comfort in all of the statistics that I did fit within, and all those that I did not. Whether currently, intermittently, or permanently, I felt solace in understanding that I was not alone that there was a larger reason or influence of impact beyond my comprehension for all of the events that have impacted me, that I deal with, that I learn and grow from, and that there wasn't anything to do with faith. It was a difference in the education and the framing of choices. We have an entire internet system to educate that was designed to taxpayer money for the basis of national security, not currently available to all yet one that is capable of reaching in educated areas where formal in-person education is less available or not possible because these people's lives don't get the luxury of stopping for two to four plus years when the rest of their family or community is counting on them. And these necessary community positions, such as working in healthcare or teaching, are somehow less profitable than something like alcohol or cigarette sales. So many never get to. 
One of my pals seemed absolutely insane at the time when she dropped out of college my sophomore year to build internet cables in Costa Rica or like some area of South America. She's like the prime, prime human trafficking victim. But at the same time, her weird intuition and ability to sense energy may actually keep her safe. Who knows? I should track her down someday soon. Either way, we thought she was like absolutely nuts and having a psychiatric breakdown at the time. And she kept pressing on the necessity for action. And I don't think that's what her highly religious white North Carolinian family expected when the church encouraged missionary style work, but she adapted. We have made it so that downtime isn't fun or alluring or easy to enjoy either because the general public is just so damn overworked and those resources or solutions or commonality of education isn't available. Shows like Euphoria, which highlights the reality of addiction directly, and The Vampire Diaries, framing substance abuse under the guise of supernatural influence, and offering a somewhat easier viewpoint because of the magical realm and considerations, are not the shows that I watch with my family. They're the shows I watch with my friends, the people I like the most. <laughs> Some of my friends only consume reality TV or media, sporting games, anything that is and remains a distraction from worrying about real life. I understand it. And I'm willing to participate in it for the shows that people actually want to discuss with me and let me know. But it's just not something that I gravitate towards. Maybe it's the biochemist in me. In fact, I'm sure it is. But everything I do, I see chemicals now. The products I use, the food I consume, the air I breathe, water I drink, bathe in, swim through. Everything is just chemicals. Whether it's alcohol, prescription medication, drugs from the street, chemicals. Using chemicals to escape means making a choice to avoid the ones available to you. But that rush, that high, that source of alleviation from pain is always going to be temporary until you're willing to confront and consider why you're seeking those avenues to get it over what other options exist. What people's energy you're relying on. Who and what you're using and in what ways to get the love and attention that you so desperately seek. And need as humans. Why you're afraid to communicate. How to word it how to ask for it, explain it, and why you've grown to assume that silence is more comfortable than discussion. With relation to a lot of things my family struggles with, one of the largest is communication. When my granny died, the matriarch of our farm, the organist for all the churches, the cheerleader and emotional support for all of my granddaddy's physical achievements, part of my family's ability to communicate died. It was quite literally the day the music died. And with every paper I deliver, bad news on the doorstep. A piece was missing, a chunk of warmth that once radiated light and love with every stroke of the key, and every gathering to play bridge. The music that floated through family gatherings came less often, as family who didn't want to assume they would be invited worked to make other plans. So by the time mine finally got around to communicating, they might have been welcome, but they probably felt like an afterthought. My family is fractured and global, military through and through. We all serve a higher purpose in different ways, and are cut from tough cloth, different cloth, military rations. Rarely are we physically on the same continent at once, let alone the same coast. Definitely not the same state. There used to not be a need or ability to communicate when apart, and some members seem to struggle to adapt and recognize that boundaries in communication are sometimes the ways that humans feel safe learning from each other. I haven't ever had much safety and expression around my family. I struggle to adequately identify and communicate with mine, because of years of being screamed at and mocked for crying <laughs> or accused of emotional manipulation just because my outward physical expression affects you and makes you recognize that, I don't know, maybe you should feel a bit differently. It has shown me that the outcome wouldn't matter. It would only cause pain. 
adding on to my parents' stress. My family was pretty damn privileged. Pretty fucking well-educated and fortunate in a lot of ways. Though again, that doesn't mean I have to universally flaunt their praises. I grew up witnessing and hearing story after story of war trauma abroad and the supposed safety back home. I didn't always have that safety at home, though. I had control, and to that I obeyed, mostly. Bessel van der Kolk states in The Body Keeps a Score that after trauma, the world becomes sharply divided between those who know and those who don't. His patients, veterans, in the group, they found resonance and meaning in what had previously been only sensations of terror and emptiness. They felt a renewed sense of camaraderie that had been so vital to their war experience. We now know that more than half of people who seek psychiatric care have been assaulted, abandoned, neglected, or even raped as children, or have witnessed violence in their families. And yet, we often frame these things as children or or people or humans with disorders, with inherent problems with who they are, instead of a series of predictable, preventable choices. Choices of action, choices of reaction, choices of passivity. We make accusation after accusation of something being wrong with people, instead of asking them why they're hurting. We treat them as problems to solve, instead of as human beings. And our government choices facilitate that barbary. Scientists at the National Institutes of Health began developing techniques for isolating and measuring hormones and neurotransmitters in blood and brain since the 1960s. Anger, lust, pride, greed, avarice, and sloth, as well as all the other problems we humans have always struggled to manage, were recast as disorders that could be fixed by the administration of appropriate chemicals. Which is true, to a degree, because inability to control one's emotions and seeking help around that in whatever way, is a good social consideration to study, especially in relation to the mind. Especially given that different emotions or activities evoke varying electrical patterns within the brain, studying and isolating those emotions, and determining the subsequent chemical processes involved, facilitates a core understanding of why humans work in the way that they do, on micro and macro scales. However, in doing so, and not having universal healthcare or regulation around pricing, they managed to vilify and reduce emotive expression for fear of psychiatric imprisonment. They managed to contain human expression and cohesion to a narrow frame of reference. They managed to police mental health breakdowns with armed insurgents, whose version of reducing the threat has commonly evolved to solely consisting of eliminating it, and often who are responding to situations under the assumption that the threat is a human being separate from them, different or lesser, a breaker of the very thing that they are tasked to uphold. At times, and based on the perception of one's humanity, those people are then even trafficked around rehabilitation centers, kept under isolation and observation for profit. People with addictions are shuttled in and out of prison facilities, oftentimes the only reliable source of shelter, food, water, and a bathroom, in and out of ambulances, emergency rooms, hospitals, desperate to learn and have control over themselves, but often only given it with an attached expectation, the ability to observe, control via management, financial interest, conditional love. And we wonder why they rebel against the confines of their freedom, why they don't feel safe to trust that it won't be ripped away from them at any given moment, why our fears around death, specifically the profit in death, 
culturally have enabled and shaped eugenics movements and mentalities which exist in our societal framework. Because, I mean, we did kind of welcome 88 Nazi scientists to work with our government and teach us their ways, so it's really not that far of a stretch. Especially after the loony bin that was the January 6th insurrection, which should have showed you just maybe how high up the conspiracy goes. All the way to the top. All I'm saying is that maybe, maybe a government that continues to be filled with people who tried to overthrow an entire democracy should maybe have some leadership come out and just lay it straight like, oh yeah, so we fucked up big time, like super, super badly. Capitalism has been a disaster. We are impeding our own nation's progress with greed. All of these international wars in which we utilize overseas intelligence officials of variety, expats, integration into government through years of devotion to projects and plans that are also happening on our own land, even within those very same communities of immigrants and refugees whose homes aren't safe, probably because we made them that way, or sold weaponry to the people who do, and who left in search of the unknown freedom, a better life. Which is conveniently exactly what Christopher Columbus supposedly did. And all white Europeans in the USA. Because that's what human migration is. Maybe, just maybe, we can not be dicks about it. Especially after we spend all of our goddamn time bragging about how fucking great this country is. What the fuck did you think was gonna happen? Ugh, I feel like you can tell my dad's side of the family is from New York when I get ranting like that. Also, German immigrants fleeing Europe to escape the Holocaust relocated to New York, who have since migrated south permanently. The only real difference in immigration, moving or relocation, and then transient lifestyle is the types of contracts involved, the feasibility of border crossings, and enforcement of such. Enough white people have adopted the vagabond live-in-a-van lifestyle due to the absurdity of rent prices, and should keep in mind that they're always one disaster away from being homeless, even if just for the repairs. Enough white people also grow and consume and sell weed for exorbitant, exorbitant financial profit. I've also seen way more white, wealthy, or well-educated people do cocaine, shrooms, crushing up and snorting Adderall, or any other variety of substance use, and definitely overwhelming abuse. So maybe we could just like acknowledge the reality we've created, even abysmally, in the subjectivity of trauma and judgment on addiction based on whether they meet certain incredibly subjective, arbitrary versions of success, without asking them what their version of success means. Maybe we could just like, not be afraid to ask the questions, or to explain our fears. Maybe we could just not be so exhausted by misguided assumptions of help instead of helping people ask for and learn what they need, instilling in them the idea that it will always be available, and that they are safe to, protected, and welcomed, versus feeling shut out or left to trek home, forgotten, lost, and alone. A war hero is one whose individual struggle and perseverance for life, their goal to return to a home in a system that may never have had the ability or plan to search for them, their trust and faith in a structure or institution or nation, and the ability to rely on it, to come back to execute orders in return, as service commands, is unmatched. Not every war we fight is overseas. Not every monster flays their dead, slaughtering them in horrific crimes and destroying the evidence via radiation. Unit 731 was, after all, part of the Epidemic Prevention and Water Purification Department, doing covert biological and chemical warfare research and development. And what else did we do in the interests of human curiosity and science? But we granted researchers immunity in exchange for the data they gathered during human experimentation subjects. Over 400,000 human beings, political prisoners, 
common criminals, the homeless, mentally handicapped, infants, elderly, pregnant women, were tortured, injected with diseases, even ones disguised as vaccinations. And yet we wonder why Trump and the anti-vax campaign was so detrimental to coronavirus. Limbs were amputated to study blood loss. Bodies were surgically opened, organs were removed or reattached elsewhere, boundaries were pushed in the name of science, curiosity and government profit, to the detriment of non-existent human rights. Biological warfare of bubonic plagues, infected in populations of fleas bred in laboratories, paratyphoid fever, cholera, smallpox, botulism, disease after disease to weaken the national security of the country, dropped in attacks on entire cities or individual tests on prisoners of war. No limit to the madness, simply creating so much chaos under the pretense of war, medical advancement, science, racism, and nationalist division, that the patterns of human behavior begin to highlight simply what you wanted to do, not why you wanted to do it and whether you should, or what it means to understand your choices, whose orders you're actually following, what misperceptions of freedom do you have, what are you most afraid of, motivated by, missing. What choices are you still holding yourself for or hoping that people forget or fear that people remember and judge you for versus asking because they are trying to learn to understand? What have you learned not to or are scared to say? The road was endless. To allow oneself to be carried by the mob, to be swept away by blind fate. When the SS were tired, they were replaced. But no one replaced us. We were the masters of nature the masters of the world. We had transcended everything, death, fatigue, our natural needs. We were stronger than cold and hunger, stronger than the guns and the desire to die, doomed and rootless, nothing but numbers. We were the only men on earth. Beneath our feet there lay men, crushed, trampled, underfoot, dying. Nobody paid attention to them. Not a sound of distress, not a plaintive cry, nothing but mass agony and silence. Nobody asked anyone for help. One died because one had to. No point in making trouble. God knows what I would have given to be able to sleep a few moments. But deep inside, I knew that to sleep meant to die. And something in me rebelled against that death. Death which was settling in all around me, silently, gently. But death hardly needed their help. The cold was conscientiously doing its work. At every step, someone fell down and ceased to suffer. Wasn't it dangerous to lower one's guard, even for a moment, when death could strike at any time? Our minds numb with indifference, here or elsewhere. What did it matter? Die today, or tomorrow, or later? The night was growing longer, never ending. In the early dawn light, I tried to distinguish between the living and those who were no more, but there was barely a difference. These human beings, these siblings, the childhood friends, colleagues, family, people who get addicted for one reason or another and haven't been taught to be aware of or have choices because of the administrative policy that has removed them from being possible, removed education around critical thinking, and vilifies and disregards people who need our help for normal human curiosity around opportunity, who have been conditioned to think and impulsively and blindly follow the faith of others. These people shouldn't need to escape the reality we've created so badly.
and if they understood what those realities actually mean, if they understood what the people who have found their bodies or administered Narcan or feared every day that the next morning they would wake up to not have that opportunity to share it, if they understood that they were loved. Still, regardless, maybe that chemical high wouldn't seem so alluring. If they knew they wouldn't get punished for trying to communicate or seen as a burden for not having the answers of the right people in their immediate social circles, circles that likely contributed to their decision to partake in certain behaviors, whether purposefully or not, if they could trust that they were being treated with honesty and clarity instead of isolation, or weren't always the ones who had to bridge that gap of isolation when it was caused by chasms of pain, when people don't know how to stop the pain they're causing, or don't and can't understand the pain, because all they know is that they're hurting too, and they're struggling so hard to just survive. The easy out is logically death. It's often impulsive, though questionably not without excavating previously unearthed emotional evidence that then gets passed around archaeological circles for novelty, often unnoticed until the right minds connect the missing piece. When Eli sees his father in the infirmary, he had become childlike, weak, frightened, vulnerable. I know that I was no longer arguing with him, but with death itself, with death that he had already chosen. At some point, it's true that at the end of the day, you can only, ultimately, be responsible for yourself. The purpose of healthily functioning communities, though, and specifically the government that oversees them, is to create networks of people with specific, individually curated skills who apply them to areas where they are needed, in whatever that special way is, so that you don't have to feel physically and mentally alone, isolated, even if you might be, so you can figure out a way to safely explore, to live at peace, without the impending threat of financial burden and uncertainty, assuming that humans lack the resources to work together and figure these out as a community, and don't have to be shipped off to potentially die overseas at the hands of capitalist gain, but instead could and should be able to remain in their local communities, their circle, to potentially die within our own borders at the hands of capitalist gain and the propaganda directing marketing of education around sensitive topics. Then, when the people around them are more afraid of words, of communicating, of thinking that doing so or asking how they can be of help or stating that they need them here feels selfish. And then we remove and isolate love further. I'm definitely not always good at that. I shall never forget the gratitude that shone in his eyes when he swallowed his beverage. The gratitude of a wounded animal. What are humans in society but wounded animals? What is addiction, stress, a constant exhaustion for survival where the goalposts aren't always moving out of range. Facets of human behavior impacting social cohesion that we currently allow and encourage, even administratively, from the learned helplessness of silence. Love is communication. Sometimes that's words. Sometimes you have to consider why you're particularly triggered or impacted by someone's words. Sorting through their intention and consideration instead of your assuming perception, and fear of judgment. This is also a good reminder that objectively negative judgment isn't necessarily a bad thing. Removing the stigma around these discussions and the way we view them as a society and with our policing network is that much more important. 
because a judgment is just a sensible conclusion. You decide how to interpret that and like how to internalize that judgment and why and from who. I may write harshly at times, but I'd still rather listen to you try to find the words. I'm sure your friends would as well, even if they can just be summed up in an I'm sorry, than to see you hurdle yourself to your death for any reason. Sometimes our deepest hate is for the things we cannot change about ourselves. Vesmere, The Witcher Season 2. I know I've been triggering to people in the past, in the current, and will be in the future, because who I am reminded them of who they were not, and they excluded me as a result. They bullied me extensively as a result. Or they remove themselves from me like I'm a leech, because I'm a little different. I do communicate oddly, strangely, in some peculiar ways. I'm typically not afraid of confrontation, though I certainly struggle with abandonment because honestly, why would I not? My entire family's military lineage set up for the men to one day serve their country, ship off on someone else's orders to potentially an unknown location, and possibly die or never come home and be presumed dead. I see a lot of my best friends once a year if I'm lucky, and if we're allotted time off from work and have the health, energy, or money to. When you give someone reason to question their trust, when you show the foundations that they built their lives around, the dreams they imagined, the faith they clung to in those moments of despair are faltering, built upon dishonesty, half-truths, and you aren't willing to address an answer for the gaps in your knowledge, for the assumptions you made, even so much as to acknowledge them for what they are, then we have community after community where people are leaving and there is no incentive to not. Even if it's just over substance abuse. Saying you struggle or have struggled with these things are very much part of the human experience. Even something that may have been beyond your control and stemmed from a surgery in childhood from a random sporting injury or something you have chosen to willingly do in adulthood time and time again. And shaming them. Particularly when there has been political discussion after political discussion made to impact your life and your choices before you were conscious enough to recognize and understand it. And even then, whether you had the time to actually understand helps nobody. We all need help sometimes. We should be able to emote variations of displeasure over lack of control. Whether it's how another's behavior was and is chosen to impact you, who controls those dynamics, and why does it scare you for someone to know you vulnerably? And why and when do you react less than optimally? What outcomes do you consider as the most likely or possible or expected? And how did that deviate from reality? And what are you afraid of if you do lay it all out there? If you try to communicate, use honesty. And it's somehow not enough. But assumptions? Assumptions help no one. You can make assumptions to potentially fill in details or to make predictions, but you always ultimately have to be aware of what you didn't anticipate. Variables beyond your control. Outliers. Sometimes we assume the worst because we fear to hope. Assuming and accepting the current system is enough is fearing to hope. We should all be able to trust a system to protect us and one willing to consider and correct the consequences of their own inaction, however well-intended. And for that, we need better leaders who are willing to communicate, willing to accept when they haven't gotten it right and why, 
willing to lead because of love. You might not like their methods. You might not understand their judgment. Or maybe you just never cared to listen and ask. But you have to be willing to keep trying. And you should understand and consider why they wouldn't automatically feel safe, trusted, or protected with you. What new information merged that ability? Even if your intentions are and were pure. There is a reason why veterans do so much work with rehabilitating animals, after all. Anyways, I just wanted to share this, because in addition to how mentally and emotionally exhausted I am from the coronavirus pandemic, a lot of us have been exhausted for even longer. Because of a much longer, more insidious pandemic, encouraged and physically marketed and promoted with government assistance. I know it's a big facet of public health to help yourself in your own community before you can help elsewhere. But after living, growing, learning, and working in Maryland, North Carolina, Georgia, Florida, the same problems, circles, and people exist everywhere. I can't fix my own community because we have governments unwilling to devote or consider time or energy for these problems. And all of the medication and therapy in the world doesn't change the unhealthy environments causing them or the communication issues. Treating health with temporary solutions, using band-aids when sutures are needed, is inept policy to its core. The point of government is supposed to be organization of administration, making the unpopular decisions because they're the right ones to make, or only you have enough information to do so, and were elected to carry out that order with the intelligence available to you, and to be able to trust that said government is acting in such a way to benefit the needs of its citizens, not the needs of corporations and not for government positions to function as methods of filling your personal pockets while passing legislation that harms your constituents and removing access to their knowledge of how you're harming them, just because it's easier. At the very least, facilitate economic freedom and public access to knowledge such that people can afford to remain in and help their own. Our environments are preventable from reaching that level of disruption, disrepair, but with a good old capitalist mentality of extracting resources and crushing what remains to rebuild a new glory, we're causing more problems than we're solving. And the version of success is just money transactional. It's not health. It's not happiness. It's not community. It's just cold, shiny, hard plastic. Rips the senior homecoming crown in half on stage after winning the state mathlete competition and throws it into the audience. End scene. Thank you for listening as always. Maybe it will help you understand the complexity of the mentality of addiction how it relates and has been influenced even over the last 100 years via our public policy framework and the history of warfare. And you'll consider receiving the stimuli with curiosity and concern for why people in places reached certain states of disrepair before you judge them. Shouldn't be too hard since we don't seem to hold anything accountable these days. Please don't kill yourselves, though. If you personally struggle with addiction and came across this, Your social circles and activities of interest may change. Yeah, it might be really hard. It might be unknown and scary and new. But you have to be willing to ask for and admit that you need help. And know that everyone's reaction will be coming from their own perspective and not to automatically believe it if it isn't the method of help you were imagining. Be willing to try as many times as you try to not kill yourself whilst purposely removing all of the memories of these so-called incredibly amazing parties and people that you claim to enjoy so much. Just go watch Bo Burnham's Inside.
please just fucking speak to the people you love and care about and interact with if you're worried. Remind them first that it is because you love them and don't postpone and postpone it. Nitpicking or lurking for signs confirming your fears, refusing to approach conversations with them with an open mind, or being truly willing to listen. Convincing yourself of the worst in an awful self-fulfilling prophecy of your own parallel of bad choices. These are part of the human experience we've created as a society. Something humans have been participating in since long before Western medicine. Typically either incidentally through word of mouth or by accident. Local public health departments are a good place to start if you need resources. Or the SAMHSA hotline is free and confidential at 1-800-662-4357. You can find the entirety of my blog at www.survivalmode.guide or follow me on Instagram at ZetaGrace, Z-E-D-A-G-R-A-C-E. You can also cash out Venmo or sell me for these two hours of your time, which took many, many more of my own, all under the same name as my Instagram handle. Have a great day.